less. Ruth Graham. She said this about marriage, a challenging institution full of many potential pitfalls for disputable matters, that is, differences of preference that are not necessarily encoded in the law. She said, you know, in my years married to Billy throughout the ups and the downs, the truth is I never really considered divorce. Murder, yes. But never really divorce. Ah, oh, so it is, so it is in the body of Christ. So it is in the life and body of the church. We are, Romans 1 through 11 has shown, saved by grace alone. What grace, what mercy that God would send his only son, not only to die, but to raise, to bring us into his family, to adopt us into his kingdom, to give us something so much greater than our differences and preferences to fight for and to live in. And yet here we are. Here you all are on a Sunday morning, so very different. And Paul addresses this little church in Rome, the weak and the strong. Those who are strong in the gospel and clear of conscience, free. And those who are weak, those who are perhaps scandalized by lesser things, even as they walk faithfully with the Lord, those who are struggling to explore the nature of their newfound freedom, perhaps in light of their past. And it's easy, isn't it, to abuse our freedom where we are strong. Now, why does this person make such a big deal out of this? I'm free in the Lord. It's easy to abuse our freedom. And in our weakness, it's easy to judge the freedom of another. And guess what? We are all complicated and layered entities, body and soul, flesh and spirit, old man and new. We are weak and strong in our own ways. This is why Paul stays on the issue of relationships. Remember Romans 12, 1, now by these mercies, that is the gospel of grace that he's unfolded in chapters 1 through 11, we're going to talk about what it means to be the church. To be weak and strong, brother and sister together. And as we go, I want you to remember how missional this is. How mission-minded, how outward-facing. How about the mission of the kingdom of God here in Santa Fe as we long for our friends who don't know Jesus to see and savor the glory of God. To turn from false gods and idols and sins just as we are turning and to turn to a, a Savior who can really save. That's why Paul wants Jew and Gentile to be reconciled, to be a body, to be healthy, because the body has work to do. That's why Paul stays on relationships. And so Romans 14, we'll take it in two weeks, this and the next, is a perfect follow-up to John's brave sermon last week on Romans 13, submitting ourselves to the government and governing authorities. A perfect follow-up to politics, because you know what? In Paul's day, pretty much all of the Christians, both Jew and Gentile, in the little church in Rome, were on the same side of the aisle. Jesus good, Caesar bad, and how do we now live and hopefully not die under the lordship of Rome? Things aren't that easy in our day, are they? And that's why this is a perfect follow-up. Here's a question. Can you be 
in good conscience, a Christian, and be on either side of the political aisle right now. Now, my encouragement and exhortation to you in the authority of my office as a pastor who doesn't preach or speak on political matters is that if we follow Christ, we better be all over the aisles. Jesus cares about all the issues of mercy and justice in the world. But let me answer the question for you before we get too far. Can you be on either side of the aisle and be without sin in this church? Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry. Yes is the answer to that. Yes is the answer to that question. Because there are disputable matters. And there are those in this room who are very educated and wise and love the Lord Jesus Christ and disagree deeply per your opinions on certain political matters including the level of allegiance, percentage-wise, that you have to a particular party. How shall we, the weak and the strong, then live in this new kingdom, this new polis, this new city that is breaking into all cities around the world? How shall we live amidst our different preferences according to these disputable matters? How shall we get along? And that's what Paul longs for, for the church. This is what John and I and your elders long for. Not that you forsake your opinions, no. Not that we don't have differences, no. Not that we engage in some sort of strange experiment on groupthink. And you can only be in Christ's church if we all agree on everything. Look, inside my own mind, I don't even agree on everything. No, this isn't to forsake your opinions. It's to say that where there are opinions with the potential for quarreling on disputable matters, we hold Christ, the indisputable matter, above all those things. And we listen to each other. And we are humble. And that's why I believe the main point of this passage is this. The question, how should we get along? The answer, we need to move toward each other. We need to move toward Christ as he moves toward us in the gospel. And on disputable matters, I'll get there to the definition, we need to move toward one another. And as I studied this text this week, John and I were joking about how preaching, Martin Luther called it a glorious affliction. Because every week when you're studying and praying and going through the text, it works on your heart, at least it better if you're a preacher of God's word, and man, oh, the conviction this week. Oh, the matters that are so disputable that I exalt to the place of dogma. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That is not in the Bible, little German man. Sorry. It ain't there. That's not in the Bible. How about, you know, loving your wife as Christ loved the church and not making your preferences seem ultimate? That's in the Bible. So many places where in my weakness I'm prone to be judgy. Prone to be, oh, I can't believe that they wore that today or, you know, or they weren't here or just so many little places in my, my heart. As Calvin said, a factory of idols that I'm prone to pass judgment. Ah, but then in my strength, then in those areas where I perceive having freedom in the gospel, I don't want anybody to tell me what I can and cannot do because I am free in Jesus. 
And too bad if you don't like it, and too bad if it rubs you wrong, and too bad if it infringes on your weakness. And then I read Psalm 130. The psalmist prays, if, if God in His holiness should count up all of our sins, who could stand before Him? So as we get to the question of opinion and preference and disputable matter, we need to start on the foundation of humility. And realizing that if, you, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm strong, I'm free, you're probably not as strong and free as you are. And if you've already passed judgment on five other people this morning, then there's something about the gospel in here for you as well. If God would count our sins, who could stand? So let us move toward and not away from one another for the unity of the body, for the beautification of the body that the world might see and long for Jesus. That's what we'll unpack today. Really two ways. What's the problem? What's the solution? What is the real problem here? The real problem is that on these disputable matters and opinions, Christians are building walls. They're dividing. They're, they're moving away from each other. It's very subtle, isn't it? Very subtle how we do this. You know, I'm not going to really talk to that person at church anymore. Not really going to talk to that person at church. You know, or, you know, maybe, we're, maybe we won't invite him to the dinner party. Because last time we did, you know, I just, I don't agree with their view. The question is begged, especially in our hallmark world of, you know, just can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? That's not a bad desire. I'm not mocking it as a desire, although I think it is at best naive, given not only human history exhibit A, but the reality of the fall. Uh, I mean... When I got married, I, I realized that you know, I, I really love my wife, but when two sinners share one bathroom, disputable matters can be real. We're a family, and we will have differences, and God wants it that way. In this family, we, you know, we have the folks that keep the peace, and we have the folks who can barely be invited back to Thanksgiving dinner. We got a few crazy Uncle Larry's in our family here at Christ Church, and God wants us all here. That's why when we have membership, by the way, we take vows. We make promises to each other. You know, in part, my generation has learned this, if it's broken, you just throw it away. As opposed to if it's broken, why don't you just try to like work on it a little bit? Well, the reason we take vows for really important relationships and commitments is precisely because when those disputable matters arise in our sinfulness, our hearts that are prone to wander, we're inclined to use those things as justification to move away. And God says, no, you're a family. There's got to be a way to work through these things, these opinions and preferences, and glorify Christ and still love one another. Not merely tolerate each other. It's not merely a thing of, oh, I, I tolerate you, but, you know, I tolerate you about as far as I could throw you. No, Paul, did you see what he said in the text? He says, welcome. The one who is weak. Not tolerance, but hospitality. Not, I don't like you, but it's okay that we're in the same room. No, more like, this is a hospital. Come in and heal in Jesus and get well. So to understand the text, we really need, we need to understand the context of what's happening here. And it's, it's pretty simple. The reason that Paul mentions eating and drinking and vegetables, it honestly has nothing to do with 
you know, gluttony in this case or the, the potency of the wine that they're drinking, which was assuredly not grape juice. Nor is Paul anti-vegetarian. No, the, the problem here is that you have a, a community of Jews who have been deeply persecuted in Rome. Indeed, under the reign of Claudius, they were kicked out of Rome for six years. They come back to their little church that they started because they're Jews and they believe Jesus is the Messiah, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of Gentiles there. And these Jews have already struggled to live faithfully in Rome according to God's law, but they can't find a kosher butcher in town. And so all this food and all this drink that in the context of Rome, basically all of it would have been in some way prayed over or offered or even used in the worship of idols, these Jewish folks are saying, you know, our conscience is bound on this. If this steak, as delicious as it looks, this glorious, you know, double-seared platter from the bull ring, if this was used in the worship of the false gods, we're not going to eat it. Now, the Gentiles are sitting there going, what are you talking about? This isn't a big deal at all. We've been eating the steak our whole lives. And there's no weird, you know, boogeyman and the steak and the wine and like the molecules become sinful and turn into little witch broomsticks so that they curse you when you take a bite or a drink. The Gentiles are saying, wait a minute, Paul, I, I thought you've been telling us that we have freedom in the, in the gospel. And didn't you tell us the story of Peter in the book of Acts? And, you know, he, he's confronted by the Holy Spirit and sees this glorious vision and all foods are made clean. It scandalized the Jews. Wait, all foods are made clean. Yes, Peter, all foods are clean. Because the holiness kosher food laws of the Old Testament were a place marker to point people to the perfect holiness of the sacrificial lamb, Christ. And if Christ has come, and if God is the creator and made all things good, guess what? <clears throat> all foods are clean. So here's the Gentiles. What's the big deal? But here's the Jews. Whoa, whoa, this isn't just food and drink for us, folks. This is our culture. This is our heritage. You, you know, when, when, when migrant groups, including probably your great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, move from another country, they often actually increase the level of intensity of their native language, religion, practices, and rituals. Why? So they don't lose them. So here's these Jews in the diaspora, far away from Jerusalem, and they're like, it's not, just, it's not just meat and drink. It's, this is our culture. This is our history. This is our Hebrew. This is who we are. So now how shall we be a church that's this diverse? In a community like Santa Fe that is so diverse and so layered, with all of your backstories, with all of your baggage, with your families of origin, with your successes and failures, with the things that have shaped all of you, how are we going to do that? in view of our preferences and opinions. What sparks this debate that Paul addresses in Romans 14 are these opinions that people have abstracted up to the level of dogma. And I need to say this here, and I'm going to repeat it a few times this morning. This is my sort of my pedagogical strategy, my teaching strategy to repeat this so that hopefully I'm not accused of not saying it and it sinks in. We are talking about disputable matters. So that anything that the scriptures clearly condemn and call sin and call the transgression and the breaking of the law is not what Paul has in view here. 
the scriptures are, are so clear on certain things that we should not do. They are selfish, self-love, sin actions and certain things that we should do to honor and glorify God. That's not what Paul is dealing with. And yet, don't we live in a, in a day where you often hear, if you raise your voice, judge not. Judge not, lest ye be judged. No one can say anything to anyone. Because you can't judge me. You can't tell me anything. That's not at all what Paul is indicating. So let me quote Mike Kruger. Professor Mike, uh, he's got a good quote that I think sums this up. We often hear in our day, as an excuse to be protected from gainful introspection, these words, do not judge, judge not, lest ye be judged, you can't judge me. In so many ways, I feel like this is the most misunderstood passage in the Bible. When Jesus, and indeed the apostles, tell others not to judge, it does not mean that we cannot go to the people we love in love, especially fellow believers, and say, hey, what you're doing is sinful, harmful to you, the body, and Christ. It doesn't mean that at all. No, when Paul says in Romans 14 that we are not to pass judgment, the weaker brother, it means that we don't hold up our own private standards, our own private and personal laws, to the limits of our own conscience against other people. We do not add laws just because we are not personally comfortable with the gospel freedom our brothers and sisters possess. That's what legalism is. Not obeying the law of God in the grace of Christ, but adding to the law of God to get the grace of Christ. And yet, ooh, and my generation is awesome at this, there is a reverse legalism. Right? My generation's like, oh, you know, some of those older folks... They, they, would never, they would never touch, a, you know, a beer or a wine. Fuddy-duddies. So we're going to make sure that every single Bible study we do is at a pub for God's glory. Woo! Swing the pendulum. No. The reverse legalism is this. When those who are more free or perceive that they are demean or despise the weaker brother, that is another law and another form of legalism. Thank you, Mike Kruger. So, what are some instances that are common to us? What are some modern examples of this? Well, we already talked about politics. How about sports teams? I mean, growing up, I truly believed if you were a Cowboys fan, you needed to repent. I'm sorry. I mean, I just did. That's what I was taught. Disputable matters. And yet we get really excited and fired up about these things. Ah, okay, that's a weird example. Give me some more. What about how people come dressed to church? Well, I mean, you shouldn't dress that way, or you shouldn't dress this way, or you should be, you know, you should da, 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 da. if you loved God, you would do X, Y, or Z. What about the TV shows you watch? What about the music you listen to? I don't know, there's some folks out there that are like, oh, these young people and their crazy music these days with its, you know, demonic undertones, and if you play the record backwards, and it's like, whoa. The other day, someone told me to Google this. Beatles songs innuendo. Oh, their songs were so wonderful and wholesome. Google it. I dare you. I dare you. Those guys were geniuses at slipping in very subtle, very crafty, and some pretty sketchy British slang into the songs that you all sang. Those are your songs, your generation, okay? It's easy to go, well, this one's okay, but oh, these are horrible. What about schools? 
If you're really a Christian, you'll send your kids to a private school. No, if you're really a Christian, you know, public, private, home is okay. No, if you're really a Christian and you don't homeschool exactly in this way, then, you know, you're obviously of the devil. And yet this is exactly what some churches get, get wrapped around the axle on. And I mean, this is no joke. You guys have seen this. You've been around long enough. This, this stuff can divide churches. You know, camp A over here and camp B over here. And then all of a sudden everybody has their list of Bible verses. They yell at each other on disputable matters. Perhaps we should look at Paul's example more closely, eating and drinking. So we know that gluttony is bad, but we also know that the Bible is full of feasting. In fact, there are are books written where they're tracing the entire history of redemption, the entire history of the unfolding of the covenant of grace around the way that God feasts with his people. Same thing with drinking. It can be very potent substance. Beer, wine, alcohol of any sort. We got to be careful. The more potent a thing is, the more careful we need to be. The Bible is clear. Getting drunk is a sin. It's a breaking of God's law. It's a selfish choice. It's harmful. Getting drunk is sinful. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by either is a fool. And yet we know that Jesus drank wine. We know that Jesus turned water into wine. And we know, as I said, it wasn't just grape juice. And if you doubt that, go read the account in Genesis where Moses plants a vineyard. And apparently the grape juice is so strong that he gets hammered enough to pass out so his son can sneak into the tent and do something unthinkable to him. So we know that there's a way to do this in moderation, carefully honoring the Lord, giving thanks, giving glory to God, but yet still serving our brothers. The point is this, it's not the stuff. That's too easy. That's religion. Religion is don't do this and do do this. This stuff bad, this stuff good. This party bad, this party good. This song good, this song bad. That's religion on disputable matters. No, it's a question of the heart. And it's a question of one's freedom of conscience. And then it becomes a question of how hearts being transformed for the glory of God with different freedoms of conscience learn to live together in a way that they actually love one another. That's the problem. So what are the pitfalls? Pitfalls of the strong. And I want you to notice that Paul speaks to them first. I love that. I love that Paul looks at the strong those who have in the gospel more freedom according to meat and drink and holy days, and he speaks to them first. This is not because, as Nietzsche said, the gospel is a teaching of weakness, to make people weak sheep so that they are stupid and don't will themselves to power and overcome. That's not what's in play here. I like Nietzsche, but that's not what's in play. No, what's in play here is The Bible wants those who are strong to use their strength precisely to serve. And in serving to die to themselves as their Christ did to love the weak. So Paul says to the strong, do not despise the weaker brother. Now, what does weak mean? We've been throwing out weak and strong here for the last 15 minutes. What what are we talking about? Well, weak doesn't mean that their faith is weak. Again, if you miss this, trouble. There are are many Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, who don't eat, who don't drink. They're vegetarians, and they observe the feasts and holy days, and they have great faith in Jesus. 
strong faith in Jesus. Many of you might know Messianic Jews who believe Jesus is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Savior of the Scriptures. And they have great faith. So it's not that their faith is weak. Weakness here pertains to the conscience, to one's personal ability to have freedom in the gospel, to partake of things that are disputable matters. That's why Paul says, do not despise them. It's not sin. If you're strong, you don't necessarily look at folks who are weak and go, oh, they're legalists. It's just legalism. You know, they don't, they don't eat this, they don't drink this, they observe these things, legalists. You know, one, one Presbyterian says, I have 52 holy days a year. It's called Sunday, the Lord's Day. 52 a year. One Presbyterian over here says, well, I've got 100. And I, I come on the Lord's Day and I worship, but I, I also enjoy partaking of, of, of the rhythms, perhaps of my own tradition or another for God's glory. So if you're strong, be careful. But if you're weak, be convinced. If you're weak, Paul says, do not pass judgment. He says it's actually an example of the weakness of your conscience. If you see someone who's strong in their freedom in the gospel and you go, eh, no, that's not okay. What you're actually doing is becoming a Pharisee. You're adding laws to God's law. Worse than that, you're playing the part of God. You're saying, I'm the arbiter of truth. That one over there, again, on disputable matters, is not God's servant who will give an account to God. No, they have to answer to my rules for myself. And at least personally, I won't project this onto you, but often in my weak points, because of my insecurity in those things, I would feel more comfortable if the master would make sure that all of his servants were just like me. Do not add laws, do not play God. And the holy days is a great example of this. Paul says, look, many of these Jews are, are, are continuing in the tradition of their forefathers, but with all these things being fulfilled in Christ. I think we have an example of that here at Christ Church. You know, we enjoy the church calendar. We enjoy the seasons. We enjoy repetition. I, as I was sitting here on my knees praying the Lord's Prayer, I hear my daughter praying it. Clearly, my daughter is praying the Lord's Prayer. It's not an empty ritual. It's not wrong to repeat those things, to have, a, to have seasons, you know, like Advent and Epiphany and Eastertide and those times of year where we're more tuned in to the, to the rhythms of life that God has put us in. Those are beautiful things. They are useful tools. So the church calendar isn't bad, but it's also not anything that you're bound by. You're not bound by it. You're not a better Christian if you, if you do it or don't do it. It might be good and helpful for you. Praise the Lord. But we don't, in our weakness, get to take the things that are good for us and make them things that are necessary for our brothers and sisters if they are preferences and opinions and disputable matters. So don't, if you're weak, assume that strength, because of your weakness, is just license. Just like the strong is not to assume that weakness is worthy of being despised. If you're weak, don't look at someone's freedom and go, well, they're just licentious. They just don't care. They just don't want to be as holy as me and as good as me and as obedient as me on disputable matters. No, it's only God's word that can sort those things out. 
And it's God alone that we will give an account to. So the strong must be careful and the weak must be convinced in their own minds. Because Paul says that the church is neither a, you know, a bad country club, but, but neither is it the fascist rule of the sin police. We don't get to go around judging everyone else because we have one Lord and one master. And this begins Paul's solution. Both the weak and the strong have one Lord. Both the weak and the strong in their temptation to move away from one another have a Jesus who took their temptation and chose in the freedom of his will to move toward them. So what about you? Are you mature? Are you strong? Are you developed in the gospel and free? Are you pretty much right most of the time? Are you theological? And you know how to end an argument quickly because you have a cadre of five-syllable words with Latin roots in your holster. Are you just really good at seeing where other people need to grow? Church people are awesome at this. And it's not just Santa Fe, it's not just Rome. It's human beings gathered everywhere. Well, great, says Paul. If you're strong, if you're mature, if you're right, and if you can see where others need help, great. Then serve. Then be patient with those who are suffering and struggling. Be kind. Bear with one another. Lift each other up. Don't gossip. Don't talk about the things that other people need to work on that you can see so clearly behind their backs. Especially not in a prayer request. Don't despise, don't judge. Help. Help. As Paul says in our text, no one lives to themselves. Whether you're strong or you're weak, you live to God to give thanks to God, to honor God, to put Christ on display here in Santa Fe. If all we are is a group of people who get together to hear a talk, sing some great songs, high five and then leave, how is that anything? How is that anything that our friends in the world would want and long for in a world that is so divided? In a world where we are now told your opinion is your identity. Your preference on matter X is your identity. And how dare anyone question what I feel about myself and my precious soul about my own identity? How can the church be a light on a hill where people come in and go, whoa, freaks. This is true Santa Fe. Look at how different you all are. Ages and stages and preferences and music and schools and the whole deal. And yet, wait, you gather around this gospel? You gather around this good news that whether you're rich or poor or young or old or black or white or brown or native or whatever you are, you cannot save yourself. You cannot do it on your own. Your family's not enough. Your tradition's not enough. Your smarts are not enough. Nothing is enough. Only Christ can do it. He must do it. He must be the one who moves toward you. And yes, that is why we can move toward one another. This is Paul's solution. Humility, because every knee will bow and you will give an account for yourself. There's plenty to deal with in your own life. 
Let's get that. Once you start to float up to heaven like Enoch, because you're sanctified enough, then you can start working on the other people around you. Until then, maybe focus on yourself, since you will not give an account to God of anyone else but you. Paul says we should welcome as we move toward. That means hospitality. It means we see the church as a hospital and not just a place where everybody has to show up okay. Because we don't like it if they don't. Maturity in Christ, maturity in your freedom in the gospel, means that you now have strength to go out and be a peacemaker. This is Paul's solution. The gospel of God's grace. It is actually incredible that we can gather here together, friends. Different as we are, but united to Christ. Christ who unites us across our divisions so that we might go out into all the divided places and move toward the broken. I just want to end with this illustration. We started with Ruth Graham. Never divorce, murder, yes. And another wedding illustration to bring us home. I saw this video and I posted it on Facebook. I can't remember who initially posted it, but it's of a wedding. And all you can see when the video starts is the bride leaning over to kiss her new husband. And there's wedding music playing in the background. And the implication of the DJ is, all right, it's the first dance. And all of a sudden the bride stands up and takes a few steps back and you can see that her her new husband is in a wheelchair. And so immediately in your heart, you're like, oh, whoa, this is not what I expected. Maybe not what I hoped for. You get a little bit sad, perhaps. How will there be strength in the midst of this weakness? And this beautiful thing happens. All of a sudden, amidst their differences, an older man comes and sits next to, I'm guessing, his son in the wheelchair. Someone puts a chair behind him. And then a chair on the other side. This why it looks like maybe it's the guy's best man. So you've got his father and his best man. They sit down next to him. It's their first dance. And all of a sudden another friend comes over and brings two big straps. And they tie their legs to each other like a three-legged race. And then the two men, the father and the best man, they get under the man in the wheelchair. And in their strength, they lift him up. So that in his weakness, he can have his first dance with his bride. And the video ends with the two of them dancing and embracing, kissing one another. Only possible. Only possible because in the midst of differences, the strong were there to serve and bless the weak. And the weak were willing in their weakness to be served and loved by the strong. This is the church that we are called to be. Because in the gospel, we need to move toward each other. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, bring glory to your name, we pray, through this word in Romans 14. Because it convicts us deeply. It it cuts us with the the surgical scalpel of your love. It it reminds us that, you know what, we are kind of judgy on a lot of stuff. And we do despise those who are weak. We do have these things in our, our hearts, and we need your help, Lord. Especially here in the church so that we might be a healthy, strong body, so that we might shine your beauty and love to the world, so that our friends who we love who don't know you, Jesus, might might look at how we interact and go, that doesn't make sense. You're supposed to be divided on all these things. You're, You're supposed to not have opinions. 
You can't talk about that stuff. Or at least everyone has the same opinion because it's your identity. No. Christ, our identity is in you alone. So that we can not only have our opinions, but we can love each other across them. Help us, Jesus, to do that. We pray for your glory. Amen.